You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I actually wanted to open just by asking Patricia, uh, how do you, what do you regard as the difference between uh, fantasy for children and for adults? Because I think you are able to bridge that. And does humor have anything to, how does humor enter into the way you're, you have, you do your work? Um, I think the what I the distinction I make is rather I don't know even if it's a fair one but to me when you write for children you write with the books that they will have read or might have read in mind that's your parameter that's your that's your frame of reference for what you should write and also you should write about children but when you're writing for adults you're your frame of reference can be huge because I write for the people who have read every single book that I've read. I just assume that they have because that's the kind of book that I like. <laughs> and um, that, so my things aren't necessarily, you know, hot and steamy and romantic and, and unfit for children, but what they do sometimes is have references that maybe a teenage reader wouldn't get because... Um, they don't always read. Like what would that? What do you mean? Um, a, a word play that you know, like maybe uh, Wallace Stegner's Thirteen Ways of Looking at It." Is that Wallace Stegner? No. Blackbird. Yeah. Is that Wallace Stegner? Stevens. Wallace Stevens' Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Blackbird." If you use the word in a sentence, that's one of the things that I think of when I think about blackbirds. And so when you put the words around the word blackbird, you are thinking of all the things that you have read, it, what, what Graves would call the literary history of the word you're using. And I don't bother with that when I write things for children, for young adults, because the frame of reference dwindles. And, you, and it's not that you don't have to work so hard. It's just that you're trying to do something different than the than what you would do for an adult reader. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, do you think there's less um, a requirement to be original writing for children? Or no, 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 no. I don't at all. And some of the you know most wonderful things that are coming out now are uh, in a movie business or remake or movies about the classic children's books like the Narnia series. And, and uh, I like to see... George MacDonald's books come into you know be made into Who's movies. Who's that? Uh, he wrote Princess and Curdie. The pr he was a nineteenth-century uh, YA writer, <laughs> in essence, and wrote wonderful fairy tales about um, odd, odd fantasies, fairy tale-like fantasies. Um, and his books need to be better known than they are. Obviously, if you don't know them, then then they should be they should be pushed because he's one of the really wonderful writers for for young adults back then and still is. Cool. Well, what the hell do you want? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a list. Um, 
Wow. No, I, uh, I might try to answer the question. <laughs> I, my, yeah, yeah, the books that I wrote as YA books that were published as YA books were quite a while ago, you know, like 25 years ago, I think the last one came out. So I don't really keep up with that, but I do every once in a while read, meet a really good writer like Holly Black, you know, I've read her books and they're just wonderful. It makes me realize how little I do know in, about the field now and how much it's changed since I was writing those things. So, no, I don't try and keep up with it. It's exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I read, you know, things written in the 19th century, and those were my touchstones. <laughs> so it's way out. <laughs> well, I had a question for David. Uh, the astronaut's wife. Now, why is that a poem and not a short story? I don't write short stories. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that explains it. That's, that's just strictly true. I have written some short stories, and some science fiction stories, and published them, actually. But that was a long time ago. Um, no, I, I don't know. I feel more at home with it. and and. In poetry, I, I feel No, no, like no, that wasn't my question. I'm talking about the story, not why you wrote it that way, but the story as it is written. I mean, could also, seems to me like, have been published as a short story. That, not in... Uh, um, but you couldn't get that nice contrast between the, the, you know, the, the press release and, and the real situation. But that was the story. I... I, I I, I thought it was well, very you're good. A fiction writer, you know. <laughs> right, but I'm just saying, fiction, especially short uh, science fiction, doesn't always have to. Uh, that seemed to have um, all the requirements of a science. It seemed to be a science fiction short story. Uh, your poetry actually seems to me fairly formal. You like to play with the villanelle and you know a lot of that stuff. Some and of the time. Yeah. yeah, some of the time, and that seemed to me like a sort of a a, a wonky. Um, uh, kind of uh, Lady Churchill's wristlet or crank uh, short story. I like my stuff. You know, yeah. yeah. So anyway. Um, I, 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 feel, I feel that I write more eloquently when I'm thinking of it as poetry than... Thinking of it as. Okay, so it's a process question. I think uh, it is. Yeah. yeah, attitude. All right. That was a nice piece. Thank you. It was fun to write. What the hell do you want? <laughs> I have a list. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the graduate of Iowa doing in science fiction? Can we make you give back your poetic license? <laughs> <laughs> Joe Haldeman went to Iowa workshop, too. <laughs> After I did. <laughs> I broke ground there. You started it. Yeah, I broke it. Um, I, was, well, I was telling the interview before. <clears throat> At Iowa, I put myself through the Iowa Writers' Workshop by working for Dr. Van Allen in the physics and astronomy department. And I made charts and graphs of the satellite data from the first American satellites that were built by grad students at the University of Iowa. And do you have any, uh, do you have engineering or physics stuff, or you just kind of squeezed no, in No, I don't, there? but I was always interested in those things. My dad was an engineer. 
grew up with uh, machines. And, and my grandfather was a crazy inventor. And he made, he invented uh, wonderful things. You know, like he invented the geodesic dome 30 years before Bucky Fuller ever thought of it. You know, but he, he was completely impractical. He never patented anything. You know? <laughs> huh. he, he built a, a, a hydraulic stabilizing mechanism for ocean liners and a hydraulic suspension system for automobiles and make working models that were beautiful. You know, but he didn't patent anything. He could have been rich and then I wouldn't have had to write. <laughs> Not that writing makes me any money, so. You know. Please. about your writing is that I, I feel like you are writing as a poet in a way. Um, each line, you pay a lot of attention to rhythm, a lot of, a lot of attention to your word choice. Um, I'm just wondering if that's something you, you've ever thought about consciously when you're writing poetry in a way. I'm sorry, it's so much easier to write than it is to explain what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think basically I just, I read very, very widely and, and pick up on things that I really, really like, and so I want to emulate or make them sound as nice as the things that I really like, and so I have to please myself, and sometimes the bars are pretty high, <laughs> you know, depending on who, who I've been reading and uh, and I just, I just try hard, that's all. <laughs> I agree with you, though. I, I think Pat's um, particularly, um, which <laughs> <laughs> well, but some, some of her books are like, are like poems. I mean, like long poems, the whole thing. You know. yeah. yeah, I agree, too. I, and it, I don't think it's a question of trying hard. I don't think that poetry is always represents a higher effort to me it's like i'm looking at what you how you chose to open this book with an image of a battle between dark and light mm. which turns out is a goddamn sunset okay <laughs> this is a <laughs> this is different than opening a book with with so people arguing in a carriage or opening a book with uh you know somebody looking out you know it it's a it's a poetic image and yeah. so it's uh and nobody's asking you to explain that, but I, I, you're absolutely right. It's it's a different way of looking at the world. And clearly, you're not writing novels or narratives um, uh, unless you're uh, unless you're writing um, fiction, unless you're writing narratives. Mm -hmm. But the the way you the way you open a story is always you're you're establishing your control. You're establishing your rules and it seems to me you do that in a very you're saying here's the here's the deal here you know and the deal is a a sort of a cosmic poetic image of uh, this battle between light and dark I thought it was remarkable you know it's a I was trying to uh, to give it I, I look on this book as my Jane Austen meets upstairs downstairs book but there's also a little bit of the 18th century in that image, you know, and that they would see the sun and the, the cloud as, as a battle between dark and light. And I was trying trying to be a bit retro there and, and even a bit um, obvious with this image because it seems to me that that fit into the tone of the, of the book that I was trying to write. 
Interesting. But Jane Austen's never done a sunset in her life. That's true. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it's very interesting. Yes? What convinced you to be a writer? Uh, I just started writing one day when I was 14, and I thought it was so much fun that I just couldn't stop. But I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be a musician because that sounded way more romantic. But I realized later that what I did was write, and what I did not do was practice. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to be a writer. <laughs> Could you expand on that a little more? I think she's trying to figure out. Yeah, I got it. You got oh, it. Oh, you got it? Okay. <laughs> All right. Please. Well, I think the riddles in that particular book came from to reading Tolkien, you know, and finishing him at 3 o'clock in the morning when I was 17. And, you know, just, and The Hobbit, and you think of Gollum down in that deep cave asking riddles, what's in your pocket? What has it got in its pocket? And that just <laughs> seemed a wonderful thing to me. You know, it's like it opened up this this world of, of what's really there, you know, what and I also needed to find out what this stuff was that I had under my nose at 3 o'clock in the morning. And so that l led me to ver reading various things, and one of them was Robert Graves' um, The White Goddess. And in that, he talks about um, the riddle of language, the riddle of, um, the riddle of the trees. And I realized that you know a lot of ancient poetry is, is simply, what does a word really mean? What what, what is this background? And as far as people changing, I, uh, that's part of you know the psychology of writing fantasy. What's real? What, what are you really looking at when you see somebody? And if they're an implement of, of some of, of your change, then they will change when you do, too. Um, as I said, I read everything, everything, but one of the, and my voice as a writer is probably pretty much shaped by now. <laughs> I don't think I could change it much, but, um, one of, two of the writers that, that I think, um, you know, outside of Tolkien and, and, uh, George MacDonald, uh, the fairy tales and the fantasy world, who affected me greatly, and, um, were P.G. Woodhouse and Elizabeth Bowen, one of whom is the sort of the James, Henry James of, of um, no, that's Edith Wharton. 
<laughs> but Elizabeth Bowen had wonderfully snaky sentence structure and very snarky ways of looking at the world. And she's just brilliant, brilliant writer. And I read all her novels and all her short stories. And P.G. Woodhouse, you know, like, what's not to love? And he is a craftsman. And, you know, you just pick up wonderful things reading him. And all that's, you know, like reading 20 years ago. But I still love his stuff. Right. Wodehouse, I think, is the David Sedaris of turn yeah. of the century. <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, well, we can crank more stuff out of these two. Yeah. Um, Peter. question about the practicality of what you just uh, added. A first-time writer with a fantasy novel, do you go with an, an agent, or do you submit it to some of these companies for and people who accept uh, submissions? Do you know that? Yes, I know the answer, but I'm not going to reveal it to you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's a peculiar time now, right now. I think um, um, there's, you know, who's publishing fantasy? Ace, certainly. Uh, Tor, you know, ban him a little bit. But. Um, it, it, I, I would not fool with an agent. And this is sort of counterintuitive uh, stuff. But agents take like six to eight months to read. Uh, they're not interested in you unless you um, are, unless they think you have a whole history. They're never interested in a single book. I'd send it over a transom. I, that's what I'd, I would do. Uh, I don't know. Does anybody disagree with that? What do you think, Amelia? You? Well, at, at the fifteen percent is no big deal, but if they pick you up, generally, you know, they're yeah, yeah. But I would send it over the transom. I would just uh, if I had something, I would I would pick a name and a publishing yeah. So is there anyone other than the band doing what band would accept over the transom? Yeah, tour. Of course they do. Anybody will. Pick out an editor's name. Send the damn thing. Don't send it U.S. postage. Send it, uh, you know, Federal Express. Spend 15 bucks. Send it there and then, um, you know, see what happens. Look, it's a long shot. But they're all looking for, um, I don't know. Look, it's hard. It's easier to get published now than ever before. It's harder to get published commercially than, than ever before. So I think there's a double-edged thing. Um, so I don't know. What do you think, David? Well, I think that's true. That particularly there are now a lot more small publishers of science fiction and right. fantasy that are it's a fairly recent development, I think. I mean, of course, there were Arkham House and things in the old days. but Well, you've got Tachyon, for like example. Tachyon, you've got Nightshade. Uh, what the hell happened to Jeremy? He never comes around anymore. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it, many times they're less inclined to take a chance than a than a big publisher, you know, uh, because they, I don't know, it's it's difficult. I don't have any advice. <laughs> I have less than Patricia. I talk right more now. about, it. huh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. All right, I want to ask a poetry question. Uh, if, you know, we all know there's a Chinese wall between science fiction and grown-up literature, right? Um, or mainstream, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, around the house and out in the yard literature. Uh, is there really, I, I know that there's, uh, there's a certain thing called science fiction poetry. 
Is it strictly a question of subject matter? I well, to me it is. Um, I, I mean, I, what I've been trying to do ever since I started writing science fiction poetry was to try and give it the same uh, literary qualities as mainstream poetry. When I first started, there was you know, science fiction poetry was mostly doggerel about you know, in, in, in occasionally turning up in one of Galaxy or one of the other little magazines, you know, but, but it really. And, and still there's a problem that a lot of the people in science fiction poetry these days don't read mainstream poetry and so they have no sense of the history of poetry whatsoever and they do silly things I mean they, they, they could learn a lot if they would read it you know. uh, but I let me ask you this uh, I mean I agree uh, uh, but it seems like if uh, like there are science fiction writers in mainstream that people have read. You know, it's yeah. like, uh, so you can, you can uh, in poetry, you know, it's like the, the, the thing you call the werewolf poem, which is really an homage to, to Dylan Thomas and all that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah vampire the vampire thing, thing uh, which is the least science fiction of all your poems. <laughs> oh, that's a fantasy. Yeah, um, <laughs> excuse me. But is there is there a... I guess there's not a major poet that dealt with this stuff. Um, well, but nobody can copy. You know, or imitate. in general, the, the, the mainstream literary people just ignored science and technology until very recently. And you know, science fiction was the only area that dealt with those things and the, and the possible consequences of them how they affected us in our lives and so on. And, and, it, and here's, you know, the technology and science is the thing that greatly shaped the world in the 20th century, you know. And it was almost completely ignored in mainstream literature. Right. You know. that's, um, that's what I was looking Yeah, that's true. That's, yeah. that's the difference. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there, there is a mainstream poet Albert Goldbar, who is a fantastic poet, a wonderful poet, and his work is science fiction. All right. Goldbar, he, he's better at it than I am, that's for sure. <laughs> he's, a, he's a friend of mine. You know. Where does he publish? He publishes in all the mainstream literary magazines, and he's published dozens of books, poems, and people Gold buy them. Barth Farber. Albert Goldbarth. Goldbarth. And he's wonderful. You've got to read him. And he's just terrific. Cool. Is he published as a mainstream writer? Yeah, he publishes as a mainstream writer. Yeah. She's done being. It's your turn. <laughs> My poems mostly unfold as they go along. I, I really don't have them planned out ahead of time, but they aren't all the same, of course. I mean, you know, sometimes I write a poem because I, I, I thought of a wonderful ending, and then I have to figure out how to get there. You know, 
But a lot of times a poem will simply start with an image or, or a, of a just string of words that sounded good together, you know, and then, then I'll write it down and start playing with it, see where it leads me. But it, a lot of it's intuitive. I just meant be loud. I didn't mean you don't necessarily have to stand up. I just mean crank the noise up so we know it's here. Yeah. Patricia, um, do all your characters arrive at once into your mind state, or do you kind of are they kind of introduce themselves to you as you go along? Oh no, I flounder all over the place when I'm writing a novel. I, I for one thing, I never know what's going to happen next. I make lots and lots of notes, but I never look at them after once they're done. <laughs> <laughs> and occasionally a character will jump in the middle of the book and cause me to go back and write him into the story. And, you know, it's just, it's just seat of the pants, hit and miss writing. <laughs> I have my 3,500 names for a baby book. <laughs> but... Uh, it's starting to fall apart. <laughs> oh, let me catch you. Patricia, who is your favorite author? That's a very good question, and I don't have any answers. <laughs> I read very, very, very many books, and, and there are many, many authors that I love. Who's your favorite author? Tough question, huh? Yeah. <laughs> good answer. Right. Sure. Oh, yes, I have. Are, and was it good? Did it come out well? Yeah, I probably, I may even have one here with me, but I don't know. Um, Sestina, do, do you all know what a Sestina is? No. <laughs> it's a 39. It's a nap in Spain, right? <laughs> The form was invented by a Provencal troubadour poet named Arnaud Daniel. And it's 39 lines long, and it's, it has six six-line stanzas and then a three-line envoi at the end, which is a, usually a message about, now carry this poem to my mistress so-and-so and may it please her or something like that. But... Um, you pick when you write one. You, you have you, you, there are going to be six words in the first six lines, ending the first six lines of the poem, and those words will also end the lines of all of the other stanzas in the poem and turn up in the three lines at the end as well. But they have to appear in a different order in each stanza. And you figure out the order by applying the formula six, one, five, two, three, four to each subsequent stanza. You find out what the rhyme pattern is going to be for the next stanzas. And you have to put those words down <laughs> and then figure out how to end up the lines with those words in the right places. So it, it is a kind of poem which takes a plan to some extent. Well, it is sort of, but you, you also have to pick up a theme of some kind for the thing that'll, that's, that it's going to make it work, you know. It's really quite hard to do well, and I've only written two that I really like. You know. 
Well, just to follow up, you, you seem to have a, a fascination with uh, with form. And did, did that come out of your work at Iowa, or is that just a personal thing you brought in there later? Or did you, at the writer's workshop, are you required to, to learn at least the rudiments of the sonnet and the villanelle and so forth? No, they didn't, they didn't make us do anything like that. But, um, but at my teacher in college before that did introduce us to those things. Okay. You know, and I started practicing with them then. But I don't know, it's just fun. You know, it, it's, it is like working puzzles to some extent. You know, you see if you can master this form, you know, which is, they're all, they're all hard in one way or another. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> the short answer to a long question. <laughs> no, Dave. Dave is wonderful at what he does, but I would. I, there's no way I could do that. You know that. What he does is so amazingly crafted that I wouldn't. That all I can do is admire. Really, I can't. I can't add anything to it. Well, I would say exactly <laughs> the same thing about her. You know, <laughs> I can't imagine how anybody can write like that. <laughs> this sounds like one of those debates. <laughs> uh, Cheryl. Yeah, um, I'd like to talk a bit about covers. I mean, one of the, the signature aspects of the Patricia McKillop book is that it always comes with this fabulous Kanika Crafts cover, and it's always seemed to me that that that's just a perfect match. That, that somehow something about craft art relates mm -hmm. to the, the, the dealer's authenticity and things. And I was wondering where that came from. Was it, it picked up by your editors or was it your idea? No, it wasn't my idea. The first one that um, was done by Kaniko Craft was the Book of Atrix Wolf, was, which was about the time that I started the idea I said I had about... Um, writing n not a series of novels, but a series of fantasy stories that were all different, but were, were oddly enough, I had an image of painting in my head. I wanted them to be like a series of paintings, but alike and only that they were fantasy, and that I did them. And somehow, um, when my editor was looking for a title that would, I mean, a cover art that would catch people's eyes. She was the one who decided on technical craft, and she, the artist, um, just sort of caught the idea that I had in my head and went with it, and I was just stunned by her work. I still am. That yeah, was Susan or Ginger? Uh, Susan Allison. Yeah, and, and does, does craft actually do the, the paintings specifically for a story? Does she read the book? Oh yeah, she reads them and and she's been very nice about her comments about them and <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yep. she likes them. <laughs> every, every detail in those covers is in the book somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she really reads them. This is very very unusual for color cover illustrations in science fiction and fantasy. Lots well, of time the the artist has never read the book at all. <laughs> you know. there, there, there are elements in the the, the pictures that are in there that just do carry on craft. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It does, and I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. <coughs> Please. Um, 
going to be recognized. It's not a name. What? What made you decide to do that? I love that, for the record. It's one of the things that you can do with that. And it's always, it's always kind of a, you have a clue into your character and where the character is going. And what, what gave you that idea? When did you start doing that? I really don't know. I do know that I made hash of the names in the Riddle Master because I was trying to imitate Welsh spelling without knowing, having a clue about <laughs> <laughs> how the words were together. <laughs> but, <laughs> but now I tend to, you know, if I come across a, na a name I like, I look it up in the dictionary and see what it means. And sometimes they actually, like, um, oh. There was a wizard in <laughs> Oh, in the forests of Ser, whose name was Unseal. And Enfield? Unseal. Oh. And I looked that up in the dictionary and found out that it was a, a lowercase medieval letter or a lowercase letter of some kind or another. Unseal, yeah. And I had used it actually for a character that I, uh, for a story that I didn't finish, but his, I used that name because he was the kind of character who was very powerful but invisible or not easily noticed, and that's why I chose that particular word. That's just one example. I just have to be happy with the name because I'm going to use it over and over and over again, so <laughs> <laughs> it helps. Please. Oh, from the from the Villanilla Flow? The, the well, other poets, I assume those are some of your favorites. But yeah, wh what other ones you particularly like, or one or poems? Well, maybe a little why. <laughs> <laughs> I do like all of the poets who were in that. Um, one of them, Donald Justice, was my advisor and, and primary teacher at Iowa. Um, he won Pulitzer Prize and so on for his work, collected work. Um, but I, Don, Dylan Thomas appealed to me a great deal, briefly when I was younger. And I just love what he does with language, you know, and the sound in his poems is just so wonderful, especially when he reads it, you know. Um, and Rethke is a, a marvelous poet, North Pacific Northwest poet, uh, and has had a huge influence on, on poets, particularly in the West area, area in the West Coast here. Um, but, you know, I, I, people always want to ask me, who's your favorite poet? I could never pick a single person. I, I have hundreds of favorites from all times, you know. I mean, <laughs> the guy who wrote the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of my heroes, you know. <laughs> 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 huh? Villon, Francois Villon, I adore, yeah. Have you translated Villon? Yeah. You have? Ah, cool. Um, in fact, it instead begins with a translation of one of his his quatrains. Read it. Cool. It's, in, uh, it's in medieval French, and it. Uh, oh, that's not the translation. No, the original I poem. Oh, you got to hear the French first. Je suis François, dont il me foise, né de Paris, un pré pontoise, et de la corde d'un toise, scora mon coeur. I am Francois, to my great dismay, 
born in Paris up Pontoise way, by a length of hempen cord I'll sway while my neck discovers what my buttocks weigh. <laughs> <laughs> he, was a, he was a notorious thief. Uh, they were still talking about his exploits a hundred years after he died. Uh, and, uh, and a marvelous poet. He was one of the founders of French literature. That's quite nice, yeah. I've heard that poem in another translation. Uh, it wasn't as good. Uh, <laughs> probably not. Uh, no, I, and I like the way you read the Cajun. <laughs> um, couple more questions, then we all have to go home. Yes, please. Ursula Gwynn, for yeah. sure, yeah. Yes, I, I liked her translation of that, too. I thought that was very good. Um, Joe Haldeman writes poetry, writes marvelous poetry. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson. Kim Robinson. Uh, in um, uh, his book, um, After the Mars series, has written, uh, Stan's actually uh, quite a good poet. He studied with Gary Snatter. Uh, and also Tom Dish, yeah, Tom, Tom Dish, Dish. Is, who's a great writer, a great critic, a great curmudgeonly old Johnsonian dude, and a, and also a, a, a very distinguished and uh, recognized, but fairly recognized poet. I published his first full-length book of poems no called shit. The Right Way to Figure Plumbing. Yeah. Cool. I had, a, All right. I had a small press called the Basilisk Press. All right. All right. Tom I, was a good buddy. How can you think of anybody else? Um, but anyway, yeah. I had a question about Francis and how close they were. Where would you say it belongs? Does it say it belongs in science fiction or would you say it belongs in poetry? Like if you're going to actually go out and look for it, you're not likely to find it that in science fiction collection. And I, I wonder if you find it in poetry. So, you know, to get, a, get to the point of where, what does it belong? Does it have its own home or a number of homes? You're probably not going to find it in any section, <laughs> unfortunately. What books uh, come uh, if It would probably be most, oh, oh, most oh. likely found with science fiction. Um, the, the mainstream poetry people don't have any idea that it even exists, and they probably wouldn't like it if they did. <laughs> Yes, there are some. Ver they flip out. I'm not sure how many. The, the anthologies are fairly recent, but the Science Fiction Poetry Association was founded in 1978, and that's a great place. If you're interested in this, you should join up. You know, uh, and they have a newsletter called Starline that publishes poetry. And it's a great place to start out if you want to do it. Um, and they, there are discussions of science fiction poetry and reviews of science fiction poetry in it. And there's a, they have an online community also. Um, yeah, I mean. Suzette Hayden Elgin, yeah. 
Yeah, there's another science fiction poet who writes prose as well. Um, what was I going to say? Hmm. It's too late. Too late. <laughs> yeah. This is what we do. This is when it goes well. It goes like this. This is a, a couple of very distinguished writers and a great crowd. And thank you for coming. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Next week, uh, next month, we're well, having. Actually, we got two events coming up. Uh, May 7th, Wednesday, May 7th is our science fiction film night. What are you showing? We'll be showing Outland and Silent Running. Okay. And the month after that, Jason and the Argonauts and Army of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And the month All right. I'm still on Nyquil, so. Okay. Um, and then uh, May 17th for our next SF and SF event, we're happy to welcome John Shirley and Daniel Marcus. John Shirley and Daniel Marcus, yeah. and it'll be great. Uh, it'll have a hard time living up to this. Thank you both. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.